we're continuing on. If you're a guest here, um, we work. We do our best to work through books of the Bible unless the Lord decides otherwise on a particular Sunday. But we go through verse by verse, so that way we can receive the full counsel of God. And so I can't hide from hard passages, like some of your study Bibles will do from time to time. You go into your study Bible and you open it up, and you're kind of going through. Oh, I don't know what this means, and you go through, and it's like they skipped it. <laughs> I don't have that luxury because we're committed to verse-by-verse preaching here because we want the full counsel of God and we want the Spirit. We want Him to teach us. Many of you are familiar with this passage. It's actually quite popular, very popular passage in a lot of movies. It's a beautiful story. Why I have been troubled all week is for some of you who have other Bibles, other than probably the the King James, um, you'll notice that around the passage there are these two brackets that are around the passage in other translations. And then there'll be some type of footnote or side note that says something to the effect of, like it says in mine here, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. I need to, if you'll indulge me for just a few minutes, just quickly help us try to understand how we have the Bible today, because that plays into this discussion. And don't worry, we're going to go through this text, but I need to explain what this means, the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Make no mistake, the Word of God is trustworthy, the Word of God is true. We do not have the original writings of the Bible. We don't have them. You can't go to some museum and find the exact thing that John wrote in the sense of the thing he was actually writing with his pen or ink. We don't have those. Okay? That's just true. The same would be true of Homer's Iliad, or any other work of antiquity, you cannot go back and get the originals. Why? Because they were written on things that were so fragile that they've gone away. Okay, They didn't have ways to preserve them like we do today. Any work from antiquity, you cannot find the originals. So does that mean we don't have a representation of the originals? No, that's not what that means. It means you don't have the one that John sat with his candle and wrote, perhaps. What we do have are copies of the originals. We, and they, guess what? Some of you may not believe this. They didn't have copy machines or a printing press at that time. So when the New Testament was written, when this Gospel of John was written, what happened was it was written. And as he wrote it, no question he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what God has said, God's Word. And he's writing and he finishes. And what happens is Scribes, those, this was their profession, they would then come and they would make copies of what he wrote. And then another scribe. Another scribe. Copies, 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 copies. And it would go out to the Christians and to the churches. These were copies of what they, of what John originally wrote. And then people would make copies of those copies. And copies of those copies, and so on and so forth. And so it starts to go, well, how do we know 
What's the original and what's not? What's wonderful is if there was only, let's say, two copies, and you were to look at one copy and look at another copy, and if there was something slightly different, you'd say, which one was the original? We don't know. But what's incredible is, so I mentioned Homer's Iliad, or there's other old works. They have roughly 10 copies of the original, maybe 12, up to 20 is the most as far as copies that they use. This is a a science that they do, that they use to find out what the original was. Okay? The best works we have, and and the scholars, they don't question at all what we have as far as those other works of antiquity. Five copies, ten copies, twenty copies are like, yes, this this is a representation of what their author originally wrote. Then there's the New Testament. Over 5,000 copies or portions of copies that we have that they bring together to make sure what we have was the original. Okay? So what that means is, if I, just for example, if I were to sit here and I were to write something now and pass it out to all of you and then you were to copy it down and then you were to take it with you and go out from here and go other places with it and they translate it into other languages, there would end up being 5,000 of those. All coming back to the original. Every once in a while, low percentage, one of those copies or copies of the copies will have a word or a sentence or something that's not in some of the other ones or majority of the other ones. Well, the whole word of God has failed. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is sometimes down the road, there were other copies that came that would have something small. Now, realize when I say something small, I mean a number that was a little bit different. Instead of 10,000, it said 11,000 or something else. It's called a scribal error in the copies that happen way down the road. But we have such old copies that go all the way back close to the time of the original and so many diverse ones. There are so many that we have, we can be assured that this is the Word of God. But every once in a while, there's something that comes up. It's very rare. And when it comes up, what's interesting, it doesn't affect doctrine or theology at all. But sometimes there's some something in the text. That's what we have here today. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, so what this is, is what they're saying is if you go back to the ones, the oldest ones that are right there, the copies that are close to John, some of those manuscripts don't have this passage in there. But it appears in some of the copies that we have down the road. So it appears in some of the copies. So here's what we're going to do with it today. There's only a couple passages in all Scripture. This is a remarkable story, and God in His providence has kept this in here. His providence means the way He oversees things. He has it in here. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to work through this text like we always do. And here's what we're going to listen for. Here's what we're going to listen for. Rings of truth. Are there rings of truth in this passage that would make us say, yes, this matches up? Okay, so let's jump into it. The woman caught in adultery. John 8, 53. They went each to his own house. Now remember, what just happened, we just got done with this division of the people, and Nicodemus had just said, hey, wait a second, if you remember Nicodemus from earlier in John, he said, hey, wait a second, before we start to condemn Jesus, shouldn't we give him a listen he said in 51, 751, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then the Pharisees who were there and they were, they were persecuting Jesus. And so they, as Nicodemus bring this up, here's what the Pharisees say. They replied to him and said, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So ultimately they began to even kind of persecute Nicodemus here. 
and then it jumps into 53. So they went each to his own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. First thing we want to listen for, is this anything unique or different that we don't normally see in Scripture? No, this is exactly what we see. Jesus always spent the night on the Mount of Olives until it was time for him for his triumphal entry. But he was always out there. Nothing unique. What I do find interesting is that Jesus is proclaiming some people are believing he's the Christ, some are saying he's the prophet, there are people believing, and they all went to their own house and nobody invited Jesus. You don't even say, hey, Jesus, come sleep with us tonight. They just all went away. And, or they didn't go with Jesus to the Mount of Olives. They decide to go to their own house. I think a good question for us, a good question for you today, do you invite Jesus into your home? Do you invite Jesus into your home? Is he a part of everything that's going on? Or is it just certain pockets of your life that he's allowed to be in? Or does he fill your home? Does his word fill your home? Verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Does this sound familiar? Have we heard this before in Scripture? No question. Luke twenty-one thirty-seven. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and and lodged at the Mount of Olives. Every day teaching the temple, back out to the Mount of Olives. Again, no question here. He sat down and Jesus is continuing to teach even though people want to kill him. But they keep trying to arrest him, but they can't arrest him. Why can't they arrest him, congregation? It's not his time yet. He's going to keep preaching. Verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery well this is an interesting scenario does adultery take place yes does it now yes did it all the way back then yes did it before then yes one of the ten commandments not surprised here what is interesting is she has been caught in the act of adultery. And they brought the woman to him. Little ears. Look at this for a second. How many people does it take for adultery? It's two. But it's not one. Where's the other person? There's something missing. There's something questionable going on here. They brought the woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to her, Teacher, this woman, interesting there, Teacher, Rabbi, like they're really coming to him. Oh, Teacher, we really want to learn from you. Help us understand, oh, high, exalted Teacher, Great One. Is that what's going on in their hearts? Do they really want to learn about Jesus? We're going to find out. That's not what they're doing. So could it be that they don't really care yet what's going on, where this other person is? They might be more concerned with trying to trap Jesus than they are the law. But they claim to be people who love the law. Verse 4. 
Teacher, she's been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5, Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? It's true. Deuteronomy 22. Leviticus 20. This is also true. This is in the Old Testament. Those who are caught should be stoned. What's interesting is it should be both parties. Notice they don't quote that, right? They just bring her. What are we going to do with her? How sick and how low can you be? Using, even trying to use Scripture to trap Jesus, the Word, the one who is the Word of God. You're trying to trap Him using Scripture. Oh, wait. Someone's tried that before. You know who that is? Tell me. Satan. Satan. That's why in conversations, Jesus tells them who their father is. The devil. And listen carefully to me. There are those who are doing it today as well. They're all over your television. Majority of the time when they are extremely rich, our Lord was not on this earth. The apostles were not. When you see these people on television doing the same type of thing, twisting scripture, their father is the devil. And they're in the same boat as these Pharisees. So they come to him. They go, the law of Moses says this. What do you say, Jesus? Why would they think about this for a second? Why would they even question this? Is Jesus going to go against Moses? That's what they're hoping. They're hoping Jesus is going to go against Moses. But why in the world would they question whether Jesus would follow Moses or not? Because this isn't the first time he showed a lot of compassion towards people. They know that he has been compassionate and loving to so many people that they think, okay, he's going to do it again probably, but he's going to go against the law of Moses, so we've got him. Jesus' character was that of love. He didn't, I'm not saying he stepped away from truth, but it was always truth and love, truth and love. And they don't understand love and mercy and grace. Notice verse 6. This is what gives us their motives. Verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. That's their motive. They don't care about truth. They really don't even care about this woman. She's expendable as long as we can catch Jesus. That's their motive. Where's the guy? They don't care. So Jesus <laughs> bends down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They've got this big scene. They're bringing her in. She needs to be stoned, Jesus. It's against Mo- Moses. What do you say? What's he doing? He's not playing their game. It's going to make them wait. There's been a lot of theories on what he was writing in the ground. Guess what? We don't know. We don't know. Don't build a whole sermon or a movie off of the fact, well, he's listing their sins. He's saying their names. 
We don't know what he wrote. If we needed to know, guess where it would be? It'd be in the Bible. We don't need to know. He's writing. He seems to be allowing them to just keep going because look what they do. And as they continue to ask him, right? He's drawing. They're like, so they keep pursuing. They keep asking for more. They want to know more. They want to know more. Jesus, what are we going to do? What are you going to do about it? What do you say? He then stood up and said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. They weren't expecting that one. This also is consistent with the Old Testament. When you have, you need more than one witness if you're going to condemn somebody. Stoning's in the Old Testament. But here's what happens. You who bring the charge against the person, you come with the congregation. The people come. And the person who is making the accusation throws the first stone. But here's the key. You don't get to throw a stone if you're in on the problem. If you're in on the sin, if you're in on the conspiracy, you don't get to throw a stone. What he's doing right here, I believe, because again, we know what their hearts are. We know what they're doing. This is a plan to get Jesus. He's not saying we should never condemn those who are sinful. That we have justice. We have law. He's given us our government to do this. That's not what he's saying here. It's not from now on. Only those who are sinless can make a judgment. That's not what he's saying. Because if that were the case, no one could stand. There'd be no judges on this earth. But what he's saying to these guys is, any of you who are not a part of this, go ahead. Throw a stone. He knows what's going on in their hearts and he knows the situation. You want to stick so close to the law? Capital punishment is also for those who try to get other people killed with a wrong story. That's also in the Old Testament. Go ahead, throw a stone. Then you'll be condemned too. Kind of reminds you about Heather and I were discussing the summit. Kind of reminds you about Matthew seven, where it talks about judging. Right? I don't want to judge others. That same judgment is going to be used against you. But first, what are you supposed to do? Get the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. You hypocrite. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're trying to kill this girl. Stone her, which, for those of you who don't know, that meant tying her hands behind her back and burying her about up to here and the first person throwing a stone and they continue to do so until she dies. That's what she's facing. And they've got all the religious leaders there. And he just simply draws in the sand and then stands up and says this one phrase. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And they can't do it. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. He goes right back to it. I'll just, I'll just write. Go ahead, sinless ones, throw a stone. Yeah. All right. Just keeps writing. Now look. But when they heard it, when they heard it, it doesn't matter what he was doing on the ground. Do you see? It doesn't matter what he was writing on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why does it mention the older ones? usually a little more wisdom, a little more experience. 
They all went away one by one because after he said that, they reflected on that. They said, not today. And they go away. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now here comes the evidence as we talked about for the ring of truth. All those other things we see in other places in Scripture, we've got no problem, right? But here comes a ring of truth that will knock you over. Listen to this. Jesus stood up and said to her, Can you imagine she's going to be stoned? Facing her death? Probably been caught up in this life? Probably trapped in this life over and over again? Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The best translation of that is, Leave your life of sin. Get out of it. The ring of truth that we see in Pastor John Piper says this so well. The ring of truth that we see here is the story of all of Scripture. It's the story of the New Testament. It's grace. It's grace. Notice what it says. No condemnation. I do not condemn you. So now, because I don't condemn you, go and change your life and don't sin anymore. Notice he doesn't say, go and live a life without sin, and then I'll accept you. He doesn't say that. This is grace. This is a wonderful story. God in His providence has kept it here, and it is true because we see all the rest of Scripture says it's true. It is wonderful. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you today, reflect on this. Reflect on these truths. And in particular, this last phrasing, reflect on what has happened with this young woman and what's happened in your life. He does not condemn you. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Don't condemn yourself. Don't let others condemn you. Don't let Satan condemn you. If you're in Christ, he says, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So because that's true, as we go out from here, live your lives apart from sin because of His grace. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we do thank you for this encouragement today, Lord, this word, these truths, Lord, the truth that it is by grace we are saved. You are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And our situation, whether we realize it or not, was was just like this woman, sentenced 
to death. And then you in your glorious grace step in and say, because of my death in your place for your sins, if you will trust in me, if you will follow me, neither do I condemn you. For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but as a gift of God. Lord, help us to rest in this today. Help all of us to just bask in this glorious word today. Help us because we are not condemned, because we are loved, because we have been pursued, because of your grace. Help us to live our lives apart from sin and live lives of righteousness. Lord, if there are any here who are still like this woman was before and they are facing your judgment, they are facing death because they have not cried out for your mercy, I pray today they would during this time of invitation. pray they would come down and pray and receive salvation today. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.